be talking about hope here and also in uh, the spring Kentucky, which is the parent church of this spring church. Um, Luke and uh, Tom and I and Tim P. all preach on the same text, although we uh, preach different sermons. So if you ever want to hear what somebody else did with the same text, you can go online and you can hear the, what, ha what we did in, in Tim P. <coughs> Um, but anyway, we're going to preach on, on the topic of hope because it's so pertinent to the season of Advent as, as they just so beautifully spoke of when they lit the Advent candle. Hope that breaks into the brokenness of our lives and the lives of others. But today I want to talk in particular about the hope um, that Christ brings for us, for ourselves. The truth is we all know what it is to, to intend to do something, to want to do something, but not to do it. Or to not want to do something, but to, to do it anyway. This um, idea is captured really well in a TED talk. Um, this guy by the name of Tim Urban did a TED talk on... on uh, procrastination and um, it's really a great talk um, I'm gonna play just a clip of it but if you're interested it's worth listening to the whole thing um, he talks about how as a college student I'm sure none of you did this but as a college student you know he'd get assigned a paper here and it was due here and he would wait until here <laughs> to do it he would procrastinate 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 and do it at the very last second so um, as a prelude to what you're about to see, what you need to know is he has examined the brains of non-procrastinators and procrastinators. And in the brain of a non-procrastinator, he says there is the rational decision maker, and he's symbolized by just this plain stick figure in the, in the video. The mind of a procrastinator has the rational decision maker in it, but also has this monkey, which he calls the instant gratification monkey, that just always wants to do whatever is right in front of him and fun and, and makes him happy. So I want you to watch this clip now. Sometimes it makes sense to be doing things that are easy and fun, like when you're having dinner or going to bed or enjoying well-earned leisure time. That's why there's an overlap. Sometimes they agree. But other times, it makes much more sense to be doing things that are harder and less pleasant for the sake of the big picture, and that's when we have a conflict. And for the procrastinator, that conflict tends to end a certain way every time, leaving him spending a lot of time in this orange zone an easy and fun place that's entirely out of the make sense circle. I call it the dark playground. <laughs> now, the dark playground is a place that all of you procrastinators out there know very well. It's where leisure activities happen at times when leisure activities are not supposed to be happening. The fun you have in the dark playground isn't actually fun because it's completely unearned and the air is filled with guilt, dread, anxiety, self-hatred, all those good procrastinator feelings. And the question is, in this situation, with the monkey behind the wheel, how does the procrastinator ever get himself over here to this blue zone, a less pleasant place, but where really important things happen? Well, turns out, 
that the procrastinator has a guardian angel, someone who's always looking down on him and watching over him in his darkest moments, someone called the panic monster. <laughs> now, the panic monster is dormant most of the time, but he suddenly wakes up. <laughs> he wakes up. We, we less the last part of that. He suddenly wakes up when the deadline comes, right? The panic monster, when there's a deadline, the panic monster kicks into gear and the procrastinator does what he needs to do to meet the deadline. Any of you ever have that experience? Yes. Are any of you procrastinators in the room? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know. And it, what is, it's funny, as long as the panic monster kicks in in time and you meet the deadline, right? I mean, what, what harm is there really, other than you have panic and stress? And you'd be other things that go along with it. But, but you've got the job done. The problem comes when there's no deadline. And when we procrastinate things that have no deadline, they tend to be really important things. Like, for your health, you know you should exercise. But it's really easy to put that off, right? You know you ought to work on that relationship, but you don't. You know you're in a relationship that you need to break up, but you don't. You know that God is telling you to do something or not do something that you are doing, but you don't. That causes regrets, and for some people, a lifetime of regrets. The, the Apostle Paul captures this conflict that we have really well in the seventh chapter of Romans. Really well. And um, what I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about this problem, which is called sin. And I want to talk about the solution, which is that Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins. So, listen to me as I read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery unto sin. I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you know us so well. 
And we turn to you now, Lord, and ask that you would speak through this word directly into the hearts of each one of us here. And that you would fill us with the hope that is absolutely true. That you've come to save sinners. That you've come to save us from our sins. So speak now through your servant, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know the Christmas song, um, he's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. Yeah. Santa Claus is coming to town. There's an old um, Calvin and Hobbes uh, comic strip where they discuss the implications <laughs> of the words to that song. Calvin says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Hobbes, you're worried that you haven't been good? Calvin, that's the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? Haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? Hobbes, well, maybe good is more than the absence of bad. Calvin, yep, that's what worries me. <laughs> of course, good is more than bad. And we all know that, right? And Paul knows that. Paul, who writes this letter to, to the Romans. Before he was a Christian, he was a very zealous religious Pharisee. He spent his whole life trying to do that which was right and good and, and obey the, the laws of the Torah, the, the Jewish law. And after a Christian, he wants to be good. And what he's recognizing in this scripture passage is that there's this struggle. Actually, he calls it a war going on within him. That, there, that sin actually lives within him, that he's a slave to, to it. Um, and yet he also has this d desire to be good. What, what he's describing is, is that we have this, um, in Richard Dahlstrom's words, this dissonance between the standard or the ideal of who we want to be and who we really are. And it's real for all of us. In fact, um, all people, not even uh, what we would consider religious people, all people have laws. The Jews had their written laws, the, the scriptures of the Old Testament, but um, in, in the day when Paul was writing, Greeks and Roman poets and um, philosophers and speakers would often talk about this desire to do good and to be this certain kind of person and failing to, to be so. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis has um, this phrase that there's a, there's a a moral law that runs through the entire universe. That, that in every culture, there are kind of universal laws. In every culture, people want peace. In every culture, people are offended if someone lies to them. Um, in, in every culture, if I own something and you take that, that's wrong. It, you, it, it's mine. I own it. Or you own it. Um, if you're married, your spouse is your spouse and not someone else's. Um, in, in every culture, culture, uh, courage 
is valued more than self-preservation. It's a higher value. But it's, people struggle to live up to the, those things, right? And that's why when a, um, an Oscar Schindler or a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King Jr. come along, well, people are amazed and they write articles and books and make movies about their lives. Because someone lived well. What um, Paul is talking about here is that desire. I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. It's as old as the beginning of time. Cain knew he shouldn't kill his brother Abel, but he did it. Abraham knew he shouldn't lie and say that his sister was his wife, but he did it. David knew that he shouldn't sleep with his neighbor's wife and impregnate her and then and kill her husband, but he did it. We know that we shouldn't judge other people, but we do it, right? We know we shouldn't procrastinate, especially those things that are really, really important and don't have deadlines, but we do it. Paul's argument here is um, the law is spiritual. The law is good. The law that God gave us, the, the standard, there's nothing wrong with the standard. The, what's wrong is the sin. Jim Edwards in his um, commentary says, it's not a matter of trying harder. In fact, the harder we try, the more deeply we become mired in the quicksand of failure. The flesh doesn't roll over dead at conversion, neither does it die easily after that. When threatened, it fights for its life. It fights for its life. There's a dissonance between who we are, what, uh, what, we, what we want to be, and who we are. And there's a struggle to get from where we are to where we want to be, who we are to where we want to be. And oftentimes what happens is we make these commitments. We pray about it. We say, I'm done with this anger. I'm done with this cynicism. I'm done with procrastinating. And then we do it again. And what Paul is doing here is he's bringing that to the light. He's bringing the dissonance to the light. He's saying, I'm guilty of this. And that is the first step toward transformation. Um, John Ortberg tells about this uh, this time when he was um, he become been called as a, one of many pastors to a mega church in in uh, Chicago had been there very long and uh, it was his very first time to preach so he was excited he was nervous he wanted to do well he probably prepped a little bit too long that morning before he got in the car got in the car a little too late. Um, and about six blocks from the church, he looks in the rearview mirror and he sees flashing red lights. Well, he's in a hurry, so he pulls right over. Um, and the officer pulls over, but the officer doesn't get right out of his car. He, you know, sometimes they sit in their cars. And this making him quite nervous. He's very much in a hurry. So he decides, I'll save him the trip to my car. And he gets out of his car to move toward the cop's car. And the cop gets on the loudspeaker and says, get back in your car. 
So he <laughs> gets back in his car and he sits there for what seems like a forever, you know, to him. Finally, he says, the officer walked over and, and I said to him, Officer, I'm a pastor. I work at a church. I have to preach there soon. I'm, I'm running late. I'm, let me just save you some time. I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty. You know I'm guilty. We both know I'm guilty. So whatever you have to do, do it quickly because I am guilty, 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 guilty. The cop said, that's really interesting. I haven't said anything. I haven't told you why it is I pulled you over. And all you can say before I say a word is, I'm guilty, 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 guilty. What are you eager to confess, Pastor? What is it that you're guilty of? I thought, this is great. Out of 10,000 police officers in the state of Illinois, and I get Columbo. I said, officer, I'm on my way to church. I have to preach there. I'm a pastor. So when I said I'm guilty, I was preaking, speaking theologically. I'm guilty, you're guilty, we're all guilty, really. <laughs> when it comes right down to it, don't you think so, officer? He asked to see my license, and I showed it to him. He said, oh, you're from California. He had just moved there. I might have known. For, that, for the reason I stopped you is that there's a stop sign behind us, and when you came to it, your car only slowed down. It didn't stop, it just rolled right on through. Now, I don't know what they do in California, in California, maybe that's okay, but this is Illinois, and in Illinois, stop means stop. I said, you must be so proud of your state. <laughs> Things didn't go very well after that. We all understand what it is to feel guilty. And I, I'm not talking about false guilt. I, I'm talking about that guilt we feel when we're here, and we want to be here. That guilt. Paul says, I see in my members another law at war with the law in my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He sees it. He recognizes it. There's a war going on. I'm guilty. I recognize it. I'm guilty. Recognizing it is a good thing. In fact, Paul says, one reason God gave us the law is so we know what the ideal is. It, it shows us what is good. And it's not merely the absence of bad. Recognizing is good. Not everybody does that. Not everybody has the courage to do that. Some people will say, you know, the problem isn't sin. The problem is the ideal. The standard is just too high. So I give up. I walk away. I'm, I'm not even going to try anymore. I'm going to set my own rules. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what pleases me. I'm going to do what feels right and natural to me, myself and I, and maybe a few other people that think and act like me. Other people, well, they just kind of become content with the dissonance. And they live a double life. I know I have issues. I, I know that I have um, the, this sexual addiction. I know that I am greedy. I, I know that I fall far short in intimacy in my marriage. I, I know that I ignore the, 
the poor and live mostly for myself. I, I know I have those issues, but I just put on a Jesus face and I go to church and I, um, I'm fine. I sing songs and I take notes and I say to myself, this is the Christian life and I, and I remain fundamentally unchanged. That may resolve, those things may solve the dissonance in, in your life maybe, but friends, that is not the life for which we're created. That's not the life for which we're created. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? The minute he says, who? He's off the ground. Who will rescue me? I need to be rescued. I can't do this on my own. Who will rescue me? <coughs> Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the who. We need a Savior. We can't do it on our own. And God loves us so much that he gives us a Savior. Remember the story that Matthew tells about the, the birth of Christ, the conception of Christ, really. Matt, um, uh, John, uh, Joseph is engaged legally to be married to Mary. They've not had sex. He finds out she's pregnant. And he's a righteous man, so he's going to do what the law says. He's going to divorce her, because he's not supposed to marry an adulteress, which <laughs> technically she, she would be. And he's going to do it quietly so as not to embarrass her. Then he has this dream. Angel comes to him in the dream, and the angel tells him, Hey, don't be afraid. You can marry her. I want you to marry her. She's uh, she, the child in her that's conceived in her is born by the Holy Spirit, conceived from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. You know, in that day, they were, they were hoping for a political savior, an economic savior. But the first thing the angel tells um, Joseph is, name him Jesus. His name means God saves. They were hoping for big picture salvation and and that is part of what Jesus comes to do. But Dale Bruner says his work is first of all to liberate his people from their own evils. In the Bible, names are important. Names tell us something about the person. They tell us something about often what the person will do. Um, names are significant in the Bible. And um, there isn't just one name, by the way, for our Lord. Uh, there's many names for him because one name can't say it all, right? Um, this one means God saves. The angel also tells um, Joseph right after this, they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, Emily read a scripture in the Old Testament that calls him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Um, but the first name is Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. His salvation, salvation is, is announced as con conception, but it actually comes to fruition 
on the cross. You can't understand the message of Christmas unless you understand that this child that was born was born to go to the cross to take our sins, all of the sins of the world, upon himself. He was born to save us from our sins. It, unless you live in a cave, you know that something is terribly wrong with this world. But if you're honest, it's not, not all of it's out there. Some of it's in here. Some of it's in here. It's, it's my ill will, my irritability, my moral failure, my deceit, my gossip, my lying, my bad parenting, my, um, the racial, my racial injustice uh, that I might not even recognize, my hatred that I call by lesser names. It's, it's not all out there. It's in here, and, and it causes this dissonance between who I want to be and who I am often. I'm helpless without a savior. And so like Paul, I say, who will save me? I can't do it. I need someone from the outside to come in and rescue me. And God says, his name is Jesus, the one who came to save. In another book, um, my friend Jim Edwards tells a true story about um, four climbers. This was in 1957 in Austria. Four mountain climbers, two Italians and two Germans. And they were climbing a 6,000 foot, almost vertical, um, cliff in the north face on the, in the Swiss Alps. And the two German climbers disappeared and they were never heard from again. The two Italian climbers, exhausted and dying, got stuck on, this, on these two narrow ledges that were a thousand feet below the summit. The Swiss Alpine Club uh, forbade rescue attempts in the area because it was just too dangerous. But there was a small group of Swiss climbers that decided to launch a private rescue effort to save the Italians. And they carefully lowered this climber by the name of Alfred Hellepart down 6,000 feet. They suspended him on a cable that was a fraction of an inch thick and lowered him into the abyss. This is how he describes his experience. As I was lowered down the summit, my comrades on top grew further and further distant until he disappeared from sight. At this moment, I felt an indescribable aloneness. Then for the first time, I peered down the abyss of the North Face. The terror of the sight robbed me of breath. The brooding blackness of the face, falling away in almost endless expanse beneath me made me look with awful longing to the thin cable that was disappearing about me in the midst. I was a tiny human being dangling in space between heaven and hell. The sole relief from my terror was my mission to save the climbers below. Guys, that's the heart of the gospel story. 
that we were trapped but in the person and presence of Jesus. God lowered himself into the abyss of our sin and our suffering. In Jesus, God became a tiny human being dangling between heaven and hell. And he did it to save the people trapped below you and me. The gospel is so much more radical than any other religion that tells us to be good by our own power. It tells us the story of God's risky, costly, sacrificial rescue effort to save us. I read a story this week, another story about a, a survivor of the San Bernardino massacre that happened a couple, three years ago, I think 2015, when the, uh, this couple walked into a service center and, and killed 14 people. <clears throat> the survivor's name is Shannon Johnson. Or, I mean, Denise Pariza, and sh her life was saved by this man, Shannon Johnson. She tells the story that they were one minute sitting at a table and they were looking at a clock and they were kind of joking the clock must be broken because time was going so slowly. And then it seemed like a minute later they were on the floor under a table. They, had a, they were uh, shielding themselves with a, a chair that they were holding up to stop, he was holding up to stop the bullets. She said she doesn't remember a whole lot about that except what she remembers is this man's um, strong left arm just holding hers close to his body as he could um, on the left side. And, um, and she says, I always remember him saying these three words. I got you. I got you. Jesus says to you and me, I've got you. That's the hope of the gospel. I've got you. I'm come, I've come to rescue you, to save you from your sins. <coughs> So don't complain about the standard. Ask for his help in the rescue. Don't, don't change the rules. Don't make peace with it. Don't, don't say, oh, this cynicism is my new normal. Oh, this anger is just my new normal. Oh, this whatever is my new normal. No, no, no. Say, Jesus, I need you to rescue me. And what you'll find is you have an ally in the battle. You have an ally in the battle. I, I love this quote from Bono, of all people, but his experience is mine. Your nature is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I've heard of people who have life-changing, miraculous turns or turnarounds, people who are set free from addiction after a single prayer, relationships saved where both parties let go and let God. But it was not like that for me, and it's not been like that for me either. For all that I was lost, I'm found, it's probably more accurate to say, I was really lost, I'm a little less so at the moment. And then a little less, and a little less again. That to me is the spiritual life. The slow reworking and rebooting the computer at regular intervals, reading the small print of the service manual. It has slowly rebuilt me in a better image. It has taken years though, and it's not over yet. That's our hope, folks, though. It's not over yet. So my invitation to you this morning is turn to the one who comes to save you from your sins. 
Talk to him about your cynicism. Talk to him about your greed. Talk to him about your lack of intimacy, your, your disengagement. Talk to him about the things that you're battling. <coughs> He's your ally in the battle. He's the strength when you're weak. He's your purity when you lust. He's joy when, you're, when you sorrow. He's life when you feel death. He's your hope when there's despair. Turn to him. Let's pray. Father, Somebody today needs reassurance that you're on their side. Somebody today has been beating themselves up. And I pray especially for those people <coughs> that the hope of the gospel, the hope of the Savior becomes very real. And rather than run away from you or make peace and put on a Jesus face, that we turn to you and we just say, Who, Lord, who? You, will you rescue me? Will you be my ally in fighting the battles in, uh, in this dissonance that is very real? And over a lifetime, Lord, would you make us more and more like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.